I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So hear now God's holy, inspired word. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He he brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. We thank you that you have given it to us for our edification. It is good for our teaching, rebuking, correcting, and instructing. And so we pray that your spirit would do these things in our presence this morning, that you would teach us about worship, teach us about praise. We pray that you would increase our faith, fix our eyes on our Savior, Jesus Christ, and help us to exalt him this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Hannah's story was a story of God's abundant kindness to her. The story, of course, began with her in an extreme affliction, affliction at every turn. She was childless because the Lord had closed her womb. Her husband had taken a second wife who bore many children, and when they went to worship, This rival wife would provoke her, to irritate her, to make fun of the fact that she had no children. And so Hannah was in anguish of spirit. She was vexed. She was broken. And she cried out to the Lord in her anguish, asking that the Lord would give her a son. And even in that prayer, she was misunderstood as she mouthed the words to her prayer, and made no sound, but prayed in her heart. The priest Eli thought she was drunk and accused her of being drunk. And yet, in her extreme anguish, in her heartfelt prayer, the Lord heard her. The Lord heard her prayer. And what was a moment of anguish turned into a moment of hope and joy. She received a hopeful promise from Eli, and she was no longer sad. She left, and she ate. In due time, she conceived because the Lord remembered her, and 
she bore a son, Samuel. And in response to her vow, she took her son and dedicated him to the Lord at Shiloh, putting him into holy service for the rest of his days. And in our passage today, Hannah teaches us what is the appropriate response when God ex- expresses and reveals his abundant kindness to us, when he, when he gives us this kind salvation, and that we must respond with praise, heartfelt praise, true praise, exultant praise to the God who saves. Now, we know that we ought to worship our God all of the time. We know that we were created for worship. We've been talking about that in our Sunday school class. We know that God is fully worthy of our praise. And yet we also know, if we're honest, that for even, even for us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, true, heartfelt prayer and praise is very difficult, very difficult for us. And it's not that God has failed to give us sufficient reasons for worship. I mean, he is the creator of all things. He's created us. He's, he's, he's put his majesty and his glory on display in the things that have been made, Romans 1 says, and so we are without excuse. We know we ought to worship him, and God is abundantly kind to us. He cares for us. He protects us all of the time. He is good to us and providentially leading us through life all of the time. He is ordering all things for our good all of the time. And yet, uh, we forget. We forget. And we become complacent. We take God's kindness, his goodness, for granted. We begin to doubt that God is kind to us. In our worst moments, we doubt that God is even there. We, we struggle with unbelief, even for us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And even though God is always kind to us, he's always caring for us, he's always there, he never leaves us. Sometimes in his kindness, he treats us with a unique kindness, with a unique salvation from a particular affliction or a unique blessing that reminds us of his presence and his care and his love And in those moments, like what Hannah experienced, we must respond with praise and adoration for our God. So our passage says that this is Hannah's prayer. Hannah prayed this, but this is a very different prayer from what she prayed in chapter 1, isn't it? In chapter 1, she prayed a prayer of supplication. Youth group knows what that word means. We're Offering up our requests to God. In her anguish of soul, she asked the Lord to remember her and give her a son. And this prayer is very different. This prayer is a prayer of praise or victory. It is because God has responded. God has shown himself to be faithful. She is exulting in the Lord. And this prayer is very much like a number of the Psalms. The Psalms, that uh, wonderful prayer book that the Lord has given to us, a divinely inspired prayer book, but prayers that were designed for singing 
and shouting. And so it's right for us to see Hannah's prayer as a, almost a psalm uh, or a victory song. When, God's, when God grabs the hearts of his children, we burst out in song. We burst out in praise. We can't contain ourselves. And that's what we should see here. But how we praise, what we utter in our praise, whom we praise, that matters. And so let's hear what Hannah has to say, how she praises, and let's learn from her how we can praise our God in a God-honoring way. And there's two two basic components that we can see in her prayer of praise. First is, they're both in, in, in verse one. She exults in the Lord. So first is that we exult. The second part is we exult in the Lord. It's in the Lord that we exult. So let's look at those in turn. So she begins by saying, my heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Kids, let me define that word exult for you. Exult is very similar to rejoice. Like what we heard in the book of Philippians when we were going through that, we need to rejoice in the Lord always. But this is a particular type of rejoicing. This is a rejoicing of a victor in his victory. This is a victory song. She is exulting in her victory. Hannah had been afflicted, but now she has victory. She had been childless. She'd been afflicted by that childlessness. She had been afflicted by a husband who, didn't, who couldn't comfort her. She was afflicted by a rival wife who taunted her. She was afflicted by a priest who accused her of drunkenness. But now she has victory over all these things. She's been vindicated. That so-called drunkenness was revealed to be a prayer of faith that God heard and responded to. That rival wife has been silenced as she now bears this prophet, this priest, this judge of the Lord, Samuel. Her, the, the Lord has shown himself to be a good and compassionate and knowing comforter, greater than even her husband. And now she is vindicated by bearing this son. And so it's, it's a victory song. And we see this victory aspect, this victor, through what she says next. She says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, horns were used in all sorts of different purposes in the Old Testament. Let me explain what this one means. The image is that of an animal with a horn who has just had victory over its rival animals, as if the animal with the horn has gored his enemies to death and now lifts his horn in triumph, standing over his enemies to say, aha, I have, I, have, I have victory. Because in human terms, she says, my mouth derides my enemies. But she's not deriding her enemies. She's not exulting in her own strength. This is not from her or anything that she has done. Because why? She says, because I rejoice in your salvation. This salvation is from God. He is the one who has given her this song of exaltation. And so she turns from exulting to exalting the Lord God by exulting in the Lord. 
she had much to rejoice in. She now she had longed to bear a child, and now she had a child. She was no longer childless, but she doesn't focus her praise on her fact she's, she's born a child. She loved her son Samuel dearly, and yet her song is not about Samuel. Her song is about the God who saves, the God who has delivered her, the God who has made her victorious. And specifically, she focuses on two aspects of how she's going to praise him, his person and his work, or in other words, who he is and what he, has, what he does. First, she says, he is holy. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. He is the one, the true, and the living God. There is no other God but this God, her God, this one who has saved her. He is holy. He is altogether separate. He is altogether pure. He's altogether unique, and she exalts him for that. And as such, there is no other rock besides our God. He is the only true foundation. He is the only true unchanging person, thing, the only reliable truth, the only real refuge is our God. He is altogether unique. But he's also the righteous judge, she says. Verse 3, talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him, actions are weighed. God knows all things, which she knows. He knows our thoughts, the intentions of our hearts. He knows the words before we have formed them on our lips, before we know them all together. He knows our beginning from the end. He knows his beginning of, of creation until the end when his son returns in glory. He knows all things perfectly. And he says, and by him, actions are weighed. He is the standard against which our actions, our thoughts, our words are weighed. His law, the expression of his character, is the true source by which we are weighed. And he is, because he is a God of knowledge, and he is the one who is the judge who weighs these things against his righteous and holy standard, he is perfectly righteous. His judgments are just and pure. And we are all We'll all face that judgment and that righteous judgment, justice. And truly, brothers and sisters, that is not something that we, our culture wants to hear today. That there is, an, to us, objective truth. That God's truth is the truth against which we will all be weighed. What your truth is, is irrelevant. Whether or not you believe God's truth is irrelevant. You will be judged against God's standard by him perfectly with complete knowledge. And so we must hear, we must learn how he will judge us against that standard and live in accordance with that standard lest we be judged and found wanting. 
So he's the holy one, he's the righteous judge, but he's also the creator. It says in verse 8, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and by on them he has set the world. Even the world itself is not a rock, but it is himself, it is a creation of God himself. He has established his pillars and set the earth, the world on those pillars. And if he, like Samson, were to topple his pillars, the earth, the world, all creation would come to nothing. And as such, as the creator, none can stop him. And his person, his who he is, is reflected in what he does. And so she goes on to exult in those things that God does in, in fitting with his character. Because he is the rock, the only rock, she says, verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. We who hide ourselves in this rock will truly be guarded because none is like him. None can snatch us out of his hand. Because he is the, the righteous judge, he will judge justly. And she focuses the majority of her prayer on this divine reversal, this righteous judgment that our God will bring about, which she's seen in her own life. There's an expression of her own life that comes out in God's works. She says in verse 4, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren one bears seven. She who has many is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down and he raises up. He makes poor and he makes rich. He makes low and he exalts. He raises up from the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth of the Lord's, and on them he has set his world, set the earth. The Lord has promised to humble the exalted and exalt the humbled. And that's exactly what she prays in this situation that his God will, that our God will reverse, will righteously judge and bring all things in accordance with his will. And finally, because he is the creator. Because he is holy, no one will prevail against him. He does whatsoever he wills. No one can stay his hand. It says in verse 10, uh, the end of verse 9, Not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder from heaven. And the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will establish his king he will give strength to his king, and the horn of his anointed king will rise in triumph over his enemies. And so, beloved, we, we hear this clear warning in this prayer of faith, a clear warning against God's enemies. Here she stands in triumph over her enemy, and she proclaims a warning to all of God's enemies, all of those who she calls the wicked, the wicked that shall be cut off in darkness. 
And beloved, the reality is that every single one of us in and of ourselves is an enemy of God. God is the, the one by whom all things are judged. He is the one that determines what is wicked and what is righteous. And what he has declared is that all of us, by nature, as a result of our sin, are enemies of God. We are enemies of God. We are wicked in his sight. And we are liable to be judged with this judgment. But the good news is that God has sent his son, his anointed son, to be righteous for us. So that we might be clothed with his righteousness. So that he might be judged on our behalf. So that we might be judged righteous in him. God's standard by which we are judged is perfection. Perfect obedience to God's holy law. But from birth, we have broken God's holy law. There's no way that we can be perfect, that we can be judged justly in and of ourselves. If God is to judge and weigh our actions, he will find us wanting. We are worthy of his judgment his wrath, and eternal curse. And yet he sent his son to be perfect for us. He was perfect in every way. Not one sin, not one moment, not one false word, not one sinful thought, not one lustful look. Nothing. Perfect. He died on the cross as judgment against your sins so that our sins would be judged in him, so that now, therefore, for us who put our faith in Christ Jesus, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Now, when God judges us, if we are in Christ, he judges us justly by looking at his son and saying, ah, you are perfect. You are perfectly righteous. There's no sin in you, no guile. Come, receive your reward. And so there's a warning to us, beloved, that we must flee to this rock. We must find ourselves in him. But if we do not, there's a warning to those who will not. And that warning is, talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. You will be judged. The arrogance in your mouth will be shown to be folly. Because no strength, no weapon, no might will prevail against our God. He is the one God, the holy God, the creator of all things. And he will crush all of his enemies. And don't look for a moment at the church in our day and age and see it languishing and seeing the world exalted as though the, the, the church is a failed institution and a failed truth while the world and its wisdom is prevailing. Don't look at that. Because if you're going to look at that, you need to look at Hannah. And you need to see Hannah languishing in brokenness of spirit, childless, mocked, ridiculed. And then God exalting her by giving her a child. And allowing her to rise and triumph over her enemies. But even more than that, more than Hannah, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. 
a man who came in poverty, in suffering, who was ridiculed, who was ignored, who was mocked, who was beaten, who was tortured, who was crucified, who was killed, and God vindicated him by raising him from the dead, giving him the name that is above every other name. If you're going to look at the truth of God's coming judgment, look at the Lord Jesus Christ and what he will do. Hide yourself in Christ Jesus. But beloved, this isn't just a warning for the wicked or the warning for unbelievers. This is a song for the saints. This is a song for you and me who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this. Does your heart sing in vindication? Does it exult in what you have in Jesus Christ? Beloved, true prayer and true praise is a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. Our greatest adversary to true prayer, our greatest adversary to true worship and true praise is our own unbelief. We can profess belief and acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we can struggle. We will struggle with unbelief. It is an honest prayer of faith that the, that the disciples cried out, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. So let's see if the Lord can help us in our unbelief. Hannah's prayer. Let's look at her prayer and her praise. Hannah's prayer was a prayer of faith. James speaks of a prayer of faith that it is powerful when it works, which means that there can be plenty of prayers that are not of faith. So what was her prayer of faith? Well, she had to believe that God is. She had to believe that God hears, that she has a right to offer up her requests to a God who hears. She had to believe that this God has compassion, that he would have compassion on her, that he would respond, that he has the power to act even in her dire circumstances. One thing after another, even her childlessness. Lord, please, she cried. And God heard. God heard her prayer. God, God was there. He heard her, he had compassion, and he acted. Beloved, that's our God. When you pray, let me encourage you, pray to pray. Don't, her, her, her words were not drunken words. It wasn't a drunken delusion. It was, she wasn't just mouthing words. She was speaking to her heavenly father. When you pray, are you praying to your heavenly father? Do you believe that he is paying attention to you, that he cares, that he'll actually do something? A true prayer of faith is a prayer of faith. And we must pray with faith. But just as prayer is a matter of faith, beloved, so is praise. So is praise. It's a, it's a matter of praising him for who he is and what he does, and exulting in what we have in him. I've heard the objections to our singing. 
I, I heard the, the reasons why we don't want to sing. I, I understand them. Well, I don't sing very well. I don't, I don't like to sing. I don't, I don't want people to hear my voices, my, my voice. I understand. But beloved, praise and song and worship is not about you. It's not a performance. When you sing in faith, you praise well because you are praising God in, by faith and exalting him for who he is and what he does, how he reveals himself to us. We must pour out our hearts like Hannah does here. We must praise him. A, a prayer, true praise in song ought to be like a, a prayer of faith set to music, engaging our hearts and our minds on him whom we are praising, doing it together as brothers and sisters as we encourage one another in faith. It's like the Psalms. Are the Psalms a prayer or are they a song? The answer is yes, they are both. It, God must grab our hearts and we must respond with joy exulting in that, believing by faith that this is our God and that we have every reason to rejoice and burst out in song and let it flow from our lips, beloved. What, what is going on in your heart when you sing? What goes on in your heart when you sing? When you pick up your hymnal and you see those words on the page and your voice opens up, what is going on in your heart? We can get so focused on the mechanical issues of singing. I don't like my voice, or I don't know this tune, I don't like this tune, this tune's not modern enough, it's too many notes, or I, I, don't, I don't get it. And we, can, we can work on some of those things, some of those mechanical issues. So I, I, I work hard to choose tunes that we know with words that we're familiar with, that we don't get tripped up on those things. But the opposite's also true, beloved. We could get distracted in worship because we just like to hear our voice sing, or we like this tune, or this tune makes me feel emotional. This song really feels, makes me feel emotional. And beloved, our emotions are an important component of worship, but we don't praise our God to feel good. We don't do it to stir up emotions. We do it to praise Him. We must have our hearts engaged to praise him. What do you need to do to reorient your heart and your mind so that in worship, in, in praise, in singing praise, you can truly worship your God? Beloved, hear this clearly. Singing words is not praise in and of itself. True worship is from the heart. It is a matter of faith. It is expressed through our words and in our song, delighting ourselves in the God who has delighted himself in us, who has called us by his name. And, and the truth is, beloved, that so many distractions, the distractions that we face in worship are a matter of our struggle with belief our struggle with unbelief. If we knew what privilege, the privilege it is that we have, 
If we really believed that in worship we are coming into the presence of the Almighty God to meet with Him as God's holy and blood-bought people, that we had an audience before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to come before Him with reverence and awe, how would that affect our attendance? How would that affect our punctuality? How would it affect how we approach this table? Would we be so focused about, well, this bread tastes a little saltier than usual, or it's a little, little drier than I like, or this, this wine, it's a little drier. I don't, I don't like... Those would be incidental issues to the fact that we are given the privilege to feast on the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That God himself is showing us through visible signs and seals that we have union with Christ and we have fellowship with him and that we are his forever and ever. And if we understood who this God is and the privilege of praising him in song, would we be so focused on our voices? Would we be so focused on the tune? Or would our hearts be enthralled with this God who has saved us for his very own who has redeemed us by the blood of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, to worship well, we have to know this God that we worship well. We need to know him, we need to understand him, who this person is, who, 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 what he has done. But we also need to know him by faith. We need to experience him by faith. And beloved, that is why Jesus Christ came. That is why the Son of God became man. Yes, he came to save us for himself. Yes, he came to be righteous for us, to love of. That we might know him, that we might know the love of the Father. That he, we might, he said, the Father is seeking worshipers that worship in spirit. And in truth, he came that we might worship him with all of our being. Beloved, have you been enraptured by the love and the grace and the power of your Savior, Jesus Christ? The intimate and personalized love that the Almighty God has for you. That he sent his Son for you. He has redeemed you. And maybe you know, but you've forgotten. Beloved, remember. Remember this love that has been lavished on you. These, these great promises that are yours to be his forever. To be able to enjoy and exalt and delight in him forever and ever. Beloved, Jesus Christ came to give you life he, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol. He, he came to raise you up. He came to bring you from the ashes to give you a seat at the king's table so that you could have joy and gladness for all eternity. Beloved, this is ours when we receive it by faith. But when we receive it by faith, we have to exult in the Lord because our king is victorious. He's had victory over the grave. He's been seated on high. That's our king. We're his people.
and it is a hope that we have for all eternity. And beloved, Hannah experienced this joy. She experienced the joy of salvation because of the power and grace of her God by this miraculous birth that she was able to be part of. And so she sang this song. But many years later, of course, we just read this. There was another young lady who conceived as a result of God's power, God's gift, and God's might as the young Mary exulted in the Lord because the Lord had given her a child by the conception of the Holy Spirit, and she cried out her own Magnificat in the line of Hannah's, and she said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. She, too, sang of this divine reversal, this, this powerful and just judgment of our God, which she saw in herself and we know is ours because of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very creator of the universe, who entered into his creation, the very son of God who became man, the king who became a servant so that we might be brought into his family, the one who was righteous and yet put to death, for sinners, the one who knew no sin, who became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He is the anointed king. He, Jesus Christ is the righteous judge. He is the, the one who will conquer all of God's enemies and crush them under his feet. He is our vindicator and our vindication, beloved. And he is coming again. He is coming again, and his horn will be exalted over his enemies, over your enemies, forever and ever. So, brothers and sisters, he has given us every reason to exult, every reason to sing. So let's do that. Let us sing and praise and adore our God with hearts full of gladness and joy and full of faith. Let us do it now and forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have sent your Son to be our Redeemer, our Savior, our Vindicator. Thank you that he has had victory over the grave and will conquer all of your enemies. Help us to exult in him, to rejoice in him in the midst of this life. Help us to not be ashamed to sing it aloud regardless of how well we think we sing, help us to sing from the heart and be, take joy in our hearts full of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.